Yeah, let's, uh, let's jump in. Thank you, Joy, for that. Thank you, worship team, for leading us in worship today. I want to welcome you. I'm so grateful that you're here for worship today. I'm looking at a bunch of smiling faces physically here in the room, and I know we've got a bunch of people that are joining us online as well. I bet a lot of you are on family vacation, uh, travel trips this summer. Maybe you're joining us from a distance. I'm so grateful that you're worshiping together with us today as well. So we're going to continue in our Mountains and Valleys series. Each week we've talked about this, that our goal as we study through the Sermon on the Mount together is to get back to living a level life. You know, there's mountaintop experiences, there's valley below experiences. We've been talking about how the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain, these what we think are two sermons in the New Testament, I believe it's the same sermon, and it's a matter of perspective. Uh, as Jesus is sharing his sermon, Matthew remembers it as being on the side of a mountain, and Luke remembers it as being on, the, on a level plain. Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Plain, it's the same sermon. We're seeking to balance things out ourselves and get back to living a level life. This past week, I was scrolling through social media, and I used to be a youth pastor years ago, and one of my old youth group kids who's now not a kid, she's an adult and she's a teacher now and she was sharing, I, thought, I loved this quote, she said this, the God of the mountains is also the God of the valleys. The God of the mountains is also the God of the valleys. I believe this is true as we seek to get back to living a level of life. I circle that in my life. Can I share with you a bit of a, a fear of mine? I wonder what you worry about. By the way, don't miss next week. Our very own Pastor David Smith is going to be preaching next week on that powerful topic of worry. Again, out of the Sermon on the Mount. Let me share with you one of mine right now. I worry. When I was in second grade, I, um, well, I needed glasses. Things started getting fuzzy up on the blackboard, and I told mom when I came home, and they took me to the eye doctor, they prescribed me with glasses. So in second grade, I got glasses. My eyes were still deteriorating, so by fifth grade, they put me in contact lenses trying to slow down that progress or, you know, eyes getting worse. And uh, I think because of conversations that I probably overheard mom and dad talking about my eyes when I was little, I've always had just a little bit of a fear, but I would not want to lose my eyesight. I worry about that. I think about that sometimes. It's those bad dreams that I have in the middle of the night, losing my eyes, my eyesight. So you've probably never seen me in glasses. Typically, I walk around every day, all day in contact lenses. But at night when I go to bed and early in the morning, I'm still, I put them on just to walk to the bathroom. I wear glasses. Maybe you've never seen me in a picture of glasses. I asked Dawn yesterday to snap a photo of me. It's, go ahead, you can laugh. That's fine. There's something about that picture that, you know, like it's kind of right up in there. First of all, I notice I think I need to trim my eyebrows. That caught my attention when she, she showed me this picture. But I don't know, if those of you who don't have glasses, maybe you've never picked up on this, but there's a way to tell if somebody is nearsighted or farsighted just by looking at their glasses. By the way, these are Coke bottle thick lenses. I've got a horrible prescription. When you look at my face and you see the side of the face here and you look in and you see it's kind of indented there, that means they're thick and there's something about the corrective lenses there. This here is nearsighted. That's me. I'm severely nearsighted. 
And uh, I've got two boys who have the opposite. They're farsighted. And when they were tiny little boys, you'd look at them, and they had these glasses, and their eyeballs would just kind of bug out at you. My eyes get really little in the picture, but their eyes get really big. They were so cute, they would not want me to say that today. I still think they're cute today, but this is, this is one of my things. Here, here's my prescription. I actually snapped a photo of this. I'm minus nine in both sides. If any of you know anything about that, you know that's not a good prescription. Blindness. Today we're talking about eye health. Today, the topic is the Planck Speck Principle. We're looking at this ancient cancer inside of our faith communities. We know it as judging. And this is really a vision problem. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, he actually, he gets a little bit funny here in this passage. If you have your Bible with you and you want to open it up, I'm in Matthew chapter 7, beginning with verse 1. This is the Planck Speck Principle. Subtitled in my Bible, Judging Others, this is what he says. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Let's pause there just for a second. This is a comical image, literally. This is what Jesus is saying. You're looking at your brother who's got just a little bit of something that's bothering him in his eye, a speck of sawdust, and you've got a giant two-by-four sticking out of your eye. It's kind of a funny image, right? I mean, this really is stand-up comedy on a hillside, mountaintop experience, on the level plain, the valleys below. It's comedy. Why in the world are you walking around like this? By the way, uh, I recognize that if you know anything about construction right now, this is worth something. Um, this has been leaning up on my back fence. It's a leftover project from years ago, and I went looking for a two-by-four yesterday, found it in my backyard, and realized, oh, my goodness, I've just been showing off to my neighbors. I've just put my wealth on display in the backyard. This two-by-four would go for a pretty penny right now at the hardware store. Another funny thing, I was kind of playing around with it yesterday, and I was doing this business and kind of being silly with my kids, and I got a little something in my eye, and it bothered me the rest of the day. How can you say, look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye, and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? It's ridiculous. Stop doing it. Let's go back one slide real quick, and let me... Uh, let me read the rest of that verse. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? Stop walking around like this. You look ridiculous. You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will be able to see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. It's like we're walking around. Okay, seriously, dude, you got a little something in your eye. Here, let me help you with that. We can't even reach them to help them because of the thing that's sticking out of our eye. This is not good. Let me ask you this question. Would you trust a partially blind eye surgeon to do the surgery in your eye, or would you prefer to have a surgeon with perfectly clear eyesight? Say you're going to go in for LASIK eye surgery. I showed you my prescription. I wish I were a candidate for LASIK eye surgery. I'm not. But the eye is a delicate organ and one that must be handled with a whole bunch of care. 
You want somebody who can see clearly and who can handle the surgery with great care and with gentleness and with some precision. It's no different when we talk about the souls of people. If we had an issue that needed to be addressed in our lives, we would want somebody who can see clearly. You don't want a surgeon coming at you like this. I would want somebody who has a true spiritual vision in their own lives, and then they can speak truth into mine. If somebody's coming at me like this, I'm tempted to say, hold on, buddy. You can't remove a speck from my eye with a beam sticking out of your own. So what I want to do with the rest of the time that we have together today is talk through some eye health. I'm going to ask you five diagnostic questions. Then we're going to look at five surgical steps. So let's start first with these five diagnostic questions. This is like we're going in for an eye exam. I've been to several of those in my life. I told you I've got horrible eyesight. I'm actually overdue for one right now. I need to get in and see my eye doctor. And when I do, I guarantee you she's going to put one of those, I don't know, spinny wheels of death or whatever those things are that you're supposed to look through. And then she'll spin it and she'll say, does it look better here or does it look better here? Again, is it one? Or is it two? And then I pick one and then she goes on to look another area in my eye. This is what we want to do right now as we think about this topic of judging other people. Is this better here? Is it better here? Five diagnostic questions. If you are taking notes today, by the way, you can do this in the Venture app. Write this down. Here's the first question. Am I humble? Am I humble? We, we judge. We glance at somebody and we immediately size them up, right? This morning, talk about being humble. We do a gathering with our worship team early in the morning to pray through the service and to gear up and make sure we're ready to receive you and lead you well. And I was kind of engaged with something on my iPad looking at my sermon notes. I wasn't thinking and I just plopped right down in a seat over here. And guess what? My my fear of the last six to eight to ten months those little communion things that you've got on your seats, I plopped right down on it, and I heard it and felt it at the same time explode, jumped up, and then I had to go find a couple of my male staff team guys and say, guys, can you help a brother out? Do I need to go home and change my pants? What's it look like back there? What's the condition? Humility. Am I humble? Any and all judgments and evaluations of another's actions should come from a place of humility and genuine care for that person rather than a place of haughty condemnation. We call this judging. Am I humble? The question is, when you point out issues to somebody else, do you start with humility? Do you start from a place of care? Someone who recognizes that they're a sinner, saved by grace, well, they don't, they don't walk around like this so much. In other words, uh, they recognize that they have had the log in their eye removed so that they can see clearly. That person should not approach a fellow sinner with the humility of one who did not save themselves. Jesus warns against this. Perhaps you remember this story in Matthew chapter 18. There's a guy, the king says, hey, come in. You owe me a whole bunch of money, millions of dollars. And the guy comes in and he falls to his knees and he says, listen, I don't have the money to pay it. How can I get on some kind of a payment plan or something? The king feels pity on him and so he forgives him that debt, millions of dollars. The guy jumps up and he runs outside and he bumps into a lower servant who owes him a few bucks. And he says, all right, dude, it's time for you to pay up. 
And he sends him like to debtor's prison because the guy can't pay. This is not how we're designed to live. How dare we? How dare we walk around like this, judging others because we've already been forgiven much? Am I humble? Number two, second diagnostic question. Am I consistent? Am I consistent with judging? Probably we should be inconsistent. Here's what I mean. Fellow Christians are to be judged by a different standard than non-Christians, people outside the church, outside the faith. This seems to be Paul's point in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12, when he says, what business is it of mine to judge, there's our word, those outside the church? What business is it of me to point a finger at them? Listen, believers should not expect non-Christians to behave like their spirit-led followers of Jesus. Honestly, they can't. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 puts it this way, and without faith it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Without faith it's impossible to please God. Now this doesn't mean that Christians should never claim that an unbeliever's actions are sinful. Christians can still call sin a sin, but we shouldn't be surprised when an unbeliever acts like an unbeliever. The goal, our goal, is to call them to repentance and to faith in Jesus. And this starts with relationship. I was thinking about this principle just a couple of weeks ago. Perhaps you remember we did our worship on the lawn kind of service that weekend. We were planning to be out there for worship and it rained in the last minute. It was kind of fun actually. We all got to be in here worshiping together that day. Well, the week before that, we had done a VBS about a week and a half before that day. And we had given on one of the last nights uh, a gift to all the kids who came. It was like a gift certificate to come back and get a free cone of ice. It's amazing what parents will do following their kids who have been given a free piece of like sugar ice water. And so we had several folks who showed up to that. It was awesome. And, and after the worship service in here, the sun came out. We were able to go outside and play outside in the sunshine and enjoy the day. And I ended up in a conversation with a dude out there. I, I have to assume that he, um, he had one of his kids who had been at VBS. And as we were talking, and as we got a little bit more comfortable with one another, he used a little bit of language that I would describe as a bit salty. Right out here on the front lawn of the church building. Can I just say this? I love that. I love that he was here. And I am not going to judge him. He doesn't have faith in Jesus yet. I'm grateful that he's here. I'm grateful that he's checking it out. Let's go back to our hand map. Perhaps if you've been here over the last few weeks, you remember that each week we've pulled out this map of the Sea of Galilee. Let me reorient ourselves. We've been saying that the Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Plain, is about right here on the Sea of Galilee. This is the Jewish side of the lake. This over here is the Gentile side of the lake. And Jesus, at the beginning of the sermon that we're studying through, he looks at these Jewish people, these insiders, and he says, I'm calling you to be the light of the world. He probably points across the lake. There's lights from the cities of the Decapolis, the region of the Gerasenes over here. And he's probably pointing across the lake and saying, I want you to be the light of the world. Right at the base of where he's preaching this sermon is a commercial fishing village, Magdala. 
Salt is what they used to pack that fish and preserve that fish and ship it all over the known empire of the world that day. And Jesus says, let your light shine before men. You be the salt of the earth and let your light shine before men. Why? So that they over here may see your good works. Why? And praise your Father in heaven. Here's the deal, though. People that live across the lake, they don't act like Jesus' followers yet. But that's where we come in. He calls us to mission, to go be the light of the world, grace upon grace, right? We have to be careful with our judging because it can hurt our witness, not just to fellow believers, but it can hurt our witness to those who don't even know Jesus yet. Years ago, the church I was serving at the time, we put in a disc golf course. Why? Because there was a, a group in our, our community, this was in a college town, and we weren't really reaching that community well. And we thought, let's put in something that they like to do. And we put in this disc golf course, and it was awesome. We had college students coming and playing there. Our hope was, if they play in our backyard, perhaps they'll come inside and join us for worship sometime in the living room. And it happened. And one week I was out there kind of cleaning up before a big thing we were doing at the church. I had a bunch of high school students with me, and one of the kids found a pipe. And it wasn't for smoking tobacco. It was for smoking something else. And I found that, and I kept it somewhere. I've got that pipe. I can't find it. Maybe I need to find that and, and put my hands on it now. But uh, I was so grateful that there were people who were far from Jesus, people who were living this side of the lake, that were seeking to live in proximity to us. Christians. Christians are to be held to a standard outlined in the New Testament, right? But when we need to correct a fellow believer, it should be done with humility and love. The goal is repentance and restoration, not condemnation, even for those of us who are living on this side of the lake together, which asks the third question, am I consistent? Am I consistent is the second. The third one is, am I grounded? Am I grounded in Scripture is what we're asking here. Let the basis of your judgments be God and his revealed will in Scripture, not your own preferences and not your own whims. Scripture is to be our guide on what is and what is not sin. God decides what is acceptable, not humans. Some situations are not as clearly or specifically addressed in Scripture, so we should show uh, latitude in such situations. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 14 when he says this, Accept him whose faith is weak, Without passing judgment, there's our word on disputable matters, on things that may be a matter of opinion. In other words, if the Bible is not saying do this or don't do this, stop judging. One man's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man whose faith is weak, they were judging each other based on what they were eating. Eats only vegetables. The man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not, and the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge somebody else's servant? I've told this story before, but the ju my junior year of high school, uh, there were two Christian churches in my hometown. And the youth group at Jefferson Street Christian Church was invited over to um, a home, one of the elders at First Christian Church, uh, one of the leaders at that church. He opened up his pool, said, you guys have a pool party. He opened up his kitchen, the act of hospitality, and said, help yourself to any of the pop that's in the fridge. It's yours to use. We'd been there maybe 20 minutes when one of my friends, another Pharisee like me, came and grabbed me and we stood in that man's kitchen as he pointed out the half-empty bottle of wine in that fridge. 
And we stood there in that man's kitchen who was practicing hospitality, who was living through a lens of a clear conscience because he didn't find Scripture prohibited him from doing this. And we stood there and we judged him to hell. How dare he? We used language like he's a leader. How dare he? It wasn't until years later, as I was doing my own study of Scripture, somebody asked me a pointed question about alcohol, and I had to do some of the work myself, and I started reading through the Old Testament, and oh my goodness, I had to go back and repent for that moment, because sin happened in that kitchen. It had nothing to do with he, what he did or did not drink the night before, but it had everything to do with the judge, the judging that was going on inside of that teenager's heart. That Pharisee standing there in that man's kitchen. Am I grounded? Is my judging even based on what the Bible clearly says do or don't do? Fourth diagnostic question. Am I golden? Ah, as in the golden rule. The golden rule, of course, says he who has all the gold makes the rules, right? Not that golden rule. The one that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. This is the golden rule. And this should be the ultimate guiding principle in all of our judgments. Now, a twisted reading of the golden rule could be used to say, I never want somebody to judge me. Therefore, I will never judge anybody else. But a more honest assessment of our own desires, at least as believers, as those of us living on this side of the lake, should be that we do in fact want accountability when we stray. We want a humble brother or a sister in Christ to gently and lovingly show us our sin and call us to repentance. Don't let me walk blindly off of the cliff. Following the golden rule in our judgments safeguards us from being a jerk or maybe from aggressive condemnation. Christians need not fear any and all evaluations, but we should take Jesus' command considered in context seriously. Judge not that you not be judged. The question is, am I golden? Then the question is, uh, am I blind? The fifth diagnostic question. Am I blind? Literally, it's a self-exploration question. Am I walking around like this? Am I blinded by the way I am judging others? Do I have a two-by-four sticking out of my eyes? And it's obvious to other people, but I might be the last to know. Jesus is giving us a very clear picture here of how we tend to handle the blemishes and the faults of others. And Jesus is reminding us that we are far too quick to tolerate our sin over the sin of others. Do I need to remind you that when you point the finger at somebody else, you have at least three of them pointing back at yourself? I like this quote by author Ken Hughes. He puts it this way. We find it so easy to turn a microscope on another person's sin, but we look at ours through the wrong end of a telescope. This is the very definition of hypocrisy. And Jesus had super harsh words against hypocrisy. The word picture, the comedic picture that he's using here, it's almost as if the blind are leading the blind. And that is not good. We don't want to live that way. We need to help the brother with the speck in his eye. But Jesus is just telling us to deal first with the plank in our own. When we do this, we're humbled 
and we're ready to love our brother and remove that speck with the gentlest and the most loving care and the most concern for their soul. Because here's the thing. When we do eye surgery, we tend to fat finger this thing way too often. Many times, instead of being constructive, let me help you get that speck out of your eye. We clumsily, we bump them on the side of the head with the log that's coming out of our own eye. And we find ourselves being destructive. We don't take the time to remove that log out of our eye before we go digging in to somebody else's eye. We know we're judging wrongly when we lack mercy and when we have a self-righteous attitude. So we need to do a gut check. We're going to have a moment here and a few moments to do just that. We need to seek the Lord to help us in seeing our sins, that he would bring them into the light so that we can deal with them, and we can ask God to remove them so that we can help our brother or sister. We want to be able to be gentle eye surgeons. So let's deal. Five diagnostic questions, now let's look at five surgical steps to removing the log in our eye. Here's the first one. If you're taking notes, write this down. Take time to search their heart. No, 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 no. Take time to search your own heart. Stop worrying about the speck that's causing your brother's eye to flutter a little bit. Take some time to examine your heart. Heart. Psalm 139, verse 23 says this. I love this. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me into the way everlasting. God, open up my heart. Reveal it. Let me see what I need to deal with. Is there any unconfessed sin in my life? Let me get specific. We're going to talk about that here in just a moment. But first, could I encourage you to make two lists? The second uh, action step here. The, the, the second uh, surgical step is to make two lists. My mother-in-law shared a quote this past week, and I've been thinking about it all week. She put this up on social media, and this came from her hometown preacher. His name is Les. I've been thinking about this all week, and I would hope you'll think all about this this next week. If you have never grieved... If you have never grieved over your own sins, perhaps you have not yet considered them adequately. If you've not sat in and felt grief over the sin that has separated you from God, maybe you've not spent enough time. Maybe you've been too dismissive about the sins that are separating you from God. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 and 10 says this, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Skip ahead to verse 10. If we claim we have not sinned, we make God out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. So, second action step, make two lists. On a sheet of paper, put two columns side by side. On the first, simply write down my sins. And think about this last week. Think about the last several months and just write them down. Detail them honest before God. And then on the other side of the paper, write down what God wants me to do about them. Here's my sin that separates me. We're going to confess them here in a moment. But then what am I going to do to remove that from my life? This right here, this removes some of the judging that we become guilty of, right? 
Number three. Third action step is to confess. Confession is good for the soul. Confess your sins in repentance to God. Let's go back to 1 John. We skipped a verse. Perhaps you noticed that. First, verse 9. After we, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Number four, seek forgiveness. Seek forgiveness from those that you've hurt. You're maybe your husband or your children or your parents. You know. Let them know that you've sought God's forgiveness and now you humbly desire to seek theirs. You only speak of your sins and your failures here. Be ready that the other person may not forgive you, but you're doing this in obedience to God and you can't determine their reactions. They may have faults in the situation, but you're only addressing yours. So you need to do this without any expectation of a response from them. Again, you're acting in obedience to God and a desire to please him here. Colossians 3 puts it this way. Bear with one another and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And in Matthew chapter 5, again, we're in the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go, be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Number four, seek forgiveness. And number five, turn around. Turn around. We're talking, of course, here about repentance. This literally means, by very definition, I'm going this direction with sin in my life. And I've done these other steps, so I'm going to stop and turn around and go the other way. This is what it means to repent. As we wrap up today, can I cast some vision of a preferred future? And then can I invite you to go back and do some good work that we need to do before we can get to that vision of a preferred future? First of all, though, let's stop with a vision of a preferred future. Let's go back to the text. It ended up with a verse, and then it keeps going. Let's read here, you hypocrite. First take the plank out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And then Jesus, without taking a breath, just continues in this next thought. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. What? Let's go back to our hand map. Remember, this is the Jewish side of the lake. This is where Jesus is preaching this sermon. We've looked across the lake during this sermon a few times now to this region of the Gerasenes, the cities of the Decapolis. Jesus has told a story about the lost son who goes off to squander his living and wild living and his inheritance, it's gone. He goes off, the text says, to a foreign land, literally, just up, like literally you can see across this lake. It's not very big. This is a foreign land over here. Perhaps you remember that a part of that story is he's, he's slopping the pigs. The people on this side of the lake, they have issues with pigs because God has told them to stay away from pigs. It's referenced here in the Bible. 
Perhaps you remember that there's a moment when Jesus feeds 5,000 people up on this side of the lake. And then he feeds 4,000 people, miraculous miracle, on this side of the lake. But before that, you ever ask, where did those 4,000 people come from? Well, before that, he's rowed across the lake. Pigs are in this story as well. There's a a demon-possessed man. Legion is the name of the demons. There's so many. Jesus miraculously heals him, casts the demons into a herd of pigs. There's a herd of pigs there. They run off the cliff. They're drowned. And the man wants to follow Jesus, and Jesus does something curious. He says, no, don't, don't, don't follow me. Don't come with me. Go tell others what has happened. And it's the same region when Jesus comes back the next time. 4,000, at least 4,000 people show up to hear what Jesus has to say because of the testimony of this man. Pigs are in that story. There's a whole bunch of other stuff in that story as well. This side of the lake, they look down on this side of the lake. You had, uh, this dude was naked, strike one, right? Running around naked. In a cemetery, strike two, according to Jewish law. And the whole pigs thing in that story, that's strike three, four, and five. This is a big deal. This side of the lake, they look down on this side of the lake for a while. But Jesus rose across the lake and he says, what we do to feed 5,000 5, on this side, we do the same thing on this side to love on people on this side of the lake. Miraculous miracle. Skip ahead in church history. You're skipping ahead a lot there. You're reading through. Uh, the New Testament is sorting it out as Jewish people figure out how to live gospel-centric lives. Not through a lens of legalism, but how do you reach not just this side of the lake, but the whole stinking lake. Oh, my goodness, the whole world. Well, a small step is we stop judging. Still, in this vision of a preferred future, what happens? You skip ahead a few hundred years. A group of Christian, Gentile Christians, come back to this side of the lake. There's a place called Kersey. I've got a picture here to show you. This is a church building. Actually, these are the ruins of a church building that was built in the 5th, 6th century. I believe because this group of people came back and said, Jesus loved Gentiles. He loved our forefathers. And they came back and built a, a church building on the location where Jesus healed the, de- the, 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 the demoniac, the demon-possessed man. And the gospel came to Gentiles. And it came because some of the people on this side of the lake took the log and the plank out of their eyes. And they started loving people as Jesus saw them. That's the vision of the preferred future. I love this. This quote by Daniel Kish. He says this, when you actually adapt to blindness. People over here are wandering around blind. But when you adapt to that, you pretty much eradicate fear from your life in a way that most sighted people haven't. He's a blind man. He's talking about how to live blind. Can I spin that on its head? If we love the brother and sister that lives over here, don't we love them enough to take that plank out of our eyes and be Jesus to them? The preferred future. But there's a gap between here and there. We've got some good work that we have to do before we can get there, and it begins with those five action steps that we just walked through just now. So we're going to spend some time right now in our service. We're going to spend some time just taking a deep breath, 
to look inward at our hearts and to ask Jesus to do whatever he needs to do there? Is there confession? Is there some space right now in your heart that you just need to confess that sin to God? And there's a plank maybe coming out of one of your eyes that you just need to drop it and say, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the judging. Convict me of my sin. Let me deal with my sin right now so that I can love my brother, so that I can love my sister and help them remove the speck from their eye. By the way, in the original language, log, speck, it's the same substance. The thing that's stuck in this guy's eye and the thing that's stuck in the speck in this guy's eye, it's, it's the same material. This is something we all have to deal with. So let's deal with it right now. Would you pray with me? Father, over the next few minutes, as we worship, as we confess, we give you our hearts and we ask you to do the good work that you desire to do.